Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I have the pleasure of sitting down with George Briones III. There is now a website for the show. Check out www.mainideapodcast.com or click the link in the show notes and become part of the community. If you join the mailing list, you will be the first to get access to Ask Me Anything, show merchandise, products that I'm using to help me perform at my best, future events related to the show, and the book club. We're reading one book a month through the year, so join the mailing list to get updates on which books we're reading in advance. You can also find links to connect as a potential show guest or sponsor. And if you feel so inclined, you can leave a donation to help keep the lights on. But for the true fans of the show, they want to see it continue. Please take 30 seconds and leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify and subscribe to the YouTube. This helps the show get discovered organically and helps me to continually bring on incredible guests. There's also now timestamps in the show notes, so feel free to jump around to the part that interests you most, although I always recommend listening to the episode in its entirety. George Briones III is a former recon Marine, owner of GB3 Athletics, jiu-jitsu practitioner, and tactical performance coach. I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Without further ado, George Briones III. George, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and joining me on this. I'm stoked that Casey connected us. He said this is going to be a great episode, and the more I, I read up on you and prepared for it, I think he's 100% right. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. No, man, appreciate it. Thanks to... Uh... Thanks for inviting me on, and of course, uh, Casey always shooting uh, shooting my name out to people to go ahead and get my my story out. So I appreciate him so much as well. For those listening, they don't know this is the ninth attempt at doing this because <laughs> of internet connection issues. So we've bared with it. We're here. Uh, when you when you look back to your career as a reconnaissance marine and your time spent training martial arts. Both of these endeavors take a lot of time, they take a lot of persistence, they take a lot of physical effort, and you have to have a mentality that allows you to keep moving forward when pretty much everything in your body is telling you to stop. Yeah. What is something that you've picked up from martial arts that you did not learn or acquire from your time in the Marines? Well, before we got cut off, I was on a deep rabbit hole of what, we were, what this actually was for me. <laughs> now that we get to do it the second time... Um, yeah. I'm going to be able to simplify it because it was... You got some practice. Yeah, I got some practice, but I want to simplify it. it, it it's re-taught me how to utilize es escalation of force, I guess is the term I want to use. Um, you know, as a reconnaissance Marine, when I joined the Marine Corps, I didn't know I was going to become a reconnaissance Marine. I didn't know that I was going to go to war. Even though I signed up and volunteered to get into the military during a time of war, that's how naive I was and innocent to what was yeah. going on around me. I didn't know... I mean, yes, I remember the 9-11 incidents. I remember people going to Fallujah, but it never was really clicked to me. So yep. what I learned in, in the Marine Corps was like zero to 100. Hey, you get shot at, it's game on. Hey, you know, buddy right. steps on an IED, and then all of a sudden there's a complex ambush, it's game on. And right. when we went to Afghanistan, you know, especially in 2010, I did two deployments. I did one in Iraq, and we got to do a lot of... Aerial patrols, when I say aerial, I mean like area patrols. I mean we're doing a lot like vehicle reconnaissance just looking for things collecting intel but in afghanistan like we became some like really the way we call it was we we're glorified grunts we were able to jump shoot dive communicate we had snipers all with us we weren't just the infantry unit like we were reconnaissance marine we were collecting intel but we were also there to put the fight to the enemy because we were the secret yeah. squirrels 
of of that time period are the the the, the night walkers or whatever you want to label us. We got called the saint. The we were we were named the sons of Satan while we're out there in Afghanistan. Wow. That's what they labeled. Wait, you were na- within your own unit, or yeah, that was within the our unit from within the, our unit. Yeah. So first recon battalion wow. in 2010 was named the sons of Satan by Taliban. Like that's. I mean, that's a good thing for you guys, right? So like let's, that inflicts let's go, fear in the enemy. Yes, but what did it do to us internally, though? Because I tell you what, now we've lost multiple guys by their own hands due to internal gunshot wounds that they've yeah. had to deal with to be labeled sons of Satan. You go back to this time. This this is an interesting thing that I've I've talked about this with other service members before, and I, it always kind of fascinates me because when you enlist, you know what you're signing up for, right? Like you are not enlisting to be a substitute teacher at a preschool. You're not enlisting to be a garbage man. Like you are enlisting to fight, to shoot, to go to war, to be physically prepared, all these kind of things. But there seems to be a collective disconnect for not for all, but for many between that and like, oh, wait, this is no response. This is on it. And it's now and I'm going now. What was that initial like that digestive process in your head when you when you get that call and you realize this is actually for keeps like this is really going on? What was that like for you? So I guess for me, the, the real call wasn't the phone call. It wasn't the phone ringing. It was the first gunshot that went by my head. Yeah. Like the first bullet that flew by my ear. And I've talked about this before in a couple other videos and, you know, me talking about the, the challenges I faced and how to like disconnect from it, but still respect it. And it was like, there's three different types of gunshots, uh, fires. There's one that you know is for you, the one that's like, oh, that was close, but it wasn't for me. It was for someone else probably by me in my vicinity. And then it was like, oh, that's just a warning shot. And the one you know that's for you is the, the snap by the ear. Because it just it breaks that barrier. And you're like, and it gives you chills. You feel the vibrations of the bullet. You know, you're just like, whoa, that was for me. That's wow. when I knew it was like, oh, I'm no longer playing cops and robbers like if I was in the backyard in Converse in Texas a part of the Lone Star militia paintball team that I was in at the age of 11, 12 years old. That's no longer what I'm doing. Someone's trying to kill me. What am I supposed to do? (laughs) There's, what do you do? Like, what what do you do in that moment? Like, that's like instilled for me to today, right? It's like, all I knew was to go ahead and apply the skills that I had been drilled thousands of hours, thousands of hours for that moment. And then that moment now lasts seven hours that first day, the next day, another seven hours the next day. And then by the time you know it, you've been out on their land for 60 days. You haven't been back to base. You've been living out of your ruck. You've been living out of people's houses. You've been, you've been the scary monster to the little kids at 2 a.m. in the morning, knocking on their door, saying, we're taking over your compound. We're going to tie you up and hide you in the back of that room so that we can fight from this post for the next two days. Because if we let those people go, even if we pay them off, guess what happens to them? They're either dead because the Taliban feels like they traded against them, or we're dead because they go tell them. Right. It's a zero, zero error game that you're playing. Zero errors across the board. Across the How board. Do you, so you, t- you talked about this uh, falling back on your training. I think that's a, probably a theme that will show up a lot in this conversation of that preparation in those moments 
and and I have no, I have no leg to stand on here because what you're talking about is such a different level of intensity and realness than uh, us, us civilians will ever, hopefully, ever understand. But that starts this new timeline for you, right? Like yeah. the first bullet goes by, you register what's going on. There's no timeout. There's no. Uh, oh, wait, I don't want to do this anymore, right? I mean, that starts in, like, you're now you're there. Yeah. Now you're there, now that's what you're doing. When you look back to the training, from the outsider looking in, so much of it seems physical, right? It's PTs, it's evolutions, it's running, it's hiking, it's pushing your body past physical limits, breaking down those barriers, things you would see in, like, you know, the end of a CrossFit workout or so. Yeah. You can kind of wrap your head around that. Is there any kind of preparation for the psychological like just brunt that you feel in that do they train you at all yeah yeah it, that's the moments when you're getting dragged into the water for the 20th time while you're in the pool passing a brick around to a group of other 30 marines who are trying to do the exact same thing as you are become the reconnaissance marine it's the time when you're haven't slept for four or five hours uh, four or five days and you've had a minimum of two to three hours of sleep not even that over that time period you're rucking over mountainous terrain that's part of training. You're put into that headspace. It's all of that, right? It's like, if you quit in that, I don't want you on the team. I don't want to be next to you. Yeah. So already going into that environment, you knew that you weren't going to quit no matter what happened. And the only way that there was going to be a quit in you is if you were to be killed. When you look back on that, how quickly does the perception of difficulty of what you went through change when you're all of a sudden in the real thing? Like, how nice does it sound to just go do pool evolutions with your your <laughs> friends? You know, when you're like, <laughs> yeah, when you're five days into no sleep and you're sleeping in a corner with, you know, scorpions and snakes and you're wearing the same clothes you've been wearing for 50 days like how nice does it sound to go sit in a pool on Coronado and do like breath hold exercise, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's, it brings back a sense of appreciation to be completely honest. Yeah. Right. Like it, it really does because it's like, whoa, this is what got me ready to go do that thing. Like, yeah, that's, that's the appreciation I get from it. You know, I got some really great friends, prime hall, Don and, and Ricky, they created deep end fitness and underwater torpedo league. We were doing that in the military to build water confidence. We were doing these things to ourselves to get us ready for specific types of missions and things like that. Mm -hmm. And we, they brought it into the civilian world and it's turned into a full-on business to teach others how to get comfortable being underwater and how to manage and cope with stress. Because that's all that is. That's incredible. And, that's an ex yeah. and I'm using an example as that because you can see it being used in a real-life world now. And then all of a sudden you apply it to, I'm now in a gunfight and my buddies to the left and right of me are on the wall too. And we're doing work. Boom, 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 boom. Rounds are going off. You're right. talking to each other, calling up casts, calling out different directions. And you're staying super calm and collective in that whole moment. It's just a flow, right? Yeah. That's what that training does for you. That's what the 10,000 rule of going through shoot houses does for you. That's the, hey, you miss a round in that shoot house, guess where you're going? And a lot of guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You miss a round in the shoot house, there's a penalty for it. Because if you didn't put him down when you made that first point on gun on target, he potentially can now kill the buddy to you, kill your buddy behind you or you. 
So like, so crazy. It's just that so headspace. So like, yeah. Realistically, you're already being trained to go ahead and have that reaction. Luckily, I came up in a group of individuals where, dude, warlords. I you think I'm fucking cool? Like, dude, I know dudes who have put dudes down, who have stories, who have like fought for hours on end and killed over 30 dudes with a sniper rifle. Those are the dudes I was able to learn from who I still talk to today who will never sit there and bloat about it. Those are like, I was was lucky enough to be developed and raised and mentored by legit war fighters, dude. War fighters of our time. You had Ramadi, Fallujah, Baghdad. You just, the list can go on. You know, Afghanistan comes, you just, it's, Wow, and I only say this because I want the world to know the type of men and women that have actually served our country and some of the 001% that has actually done something at that level to protect our country and who have to still live with that day in and day out. Yeah, I mean, when, you know, hearing you talk about it, it's, that's not to say that there's no psychological toll or difficulty that those people deal with as a result of that protection that they provided, right? Or, or the, the time that they spent. That's, I mean, 30 people, whether they're the scum of the earth enemy or not, that's, it's, that's something real and, and very powerful to deal with no matter who you are. If you're a human, it's, it's something that you have to work through you know, on your own to some 100%. degree and hopefully with the support of, of community members and other service members that are there for you when you need to talk about stuff that other people just never understand ever, no matter what, because how could they? It's the same and, exact question. It's the exact same thing you just asked right now, the question you asked of like, yeah. how do you create that perception between the two? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's one ends and the new one starts. That's all that happens. Right. That's the way what I look at it. What are you doing to, your, to yourself like when, when you're with these teams? And man, I mean, there's so many things I want to talk about. You know, before, before we get to that, um, <laughs> I'll do my best to put some structure on this because it's you hard, could, man. Uh, let's, let's take it back to physical training. Let's, un, let's unpack what, is, what are the physical demands that you face as someone preparing to become a reconnaissance Marine versus someone who's just enlisted. And you alluded to it a little bit with like these, the water evolutions and stuff you're doing, but what are you actually getting yourself ready for as your perception stands when you're there doing it? And then what are the actual physical tasks? What are things that you're doing on a day-to-day basis prior to getting uh, a deployment? Because the reason I ask this is I really think of this stuff from, you know, you're a coach, I'm a coach we've been athletic and trained athletes before and general population people. And and I think a lot about preparedness. What are you getting ready for? What are you conditioning your body to be able to do? Is it take care of your family? Is it go on a hike? And I always look to these specialized military units is what, what more demanding thing could you actually be preparing for than what you guys prepare for? That is the ultimate physical test is can you, can you be in war? What is that's harder than a CrossFit workout. That's harder than an ultra marathon. That's harder than uh, doing a triathlon or an Ironman or an open water swim because it's unpredictable and it's all the elements. So what does that structure actually look like when you're in it? So I, and I, 
like I said earlier, like I'm really glad we're able to like dive into this stuff because I haven't done these kinds of conversations in a very long time. And my thought process to a lot of this stuff has changed so much in the way I view the world and how I, I love view it. that. I'm no different than the mom who's stepping up to do Fran. Mm-hmm. I'm no different. Why is that? It takes courage to pick that bar up and do 21 thrusters, 15 thrusters, 9 thrusters with chest and bar pull-ups. It also takes yeah. courage to pick up my rifle, put on my helmet, shooter's kit, my ruck, look to the guys to the left and right and be like, you guys ready to rock and roll and step out of front of your lines because we're about to do this again. There's no difference. The right. stress is very similar. My stress is just here. Their stress is there. It's the same exact thing why I chased specific numbers on a weightlifting bar for so long. Because, <laughs> there. yeah, correct. Because it, it's, yeah. it's, it's unpredictable, right? The, the mom who goes and picks up the, 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 the barbell for 15 after she just got completed doing unbroken 21 pull-ups, well, she, that was unpredictable. What if she didn't think she could do that? Now she has to face the consequences of doing 21 unbroken chest bar pull-ups when she picks up the 15, par, 15, 15 reps now for the 15 barbell reps of thrusters. Right. It's the same thing with me. I step outside of friendly lines. I take the wrong step or our point man takes us down the wrong direction or takes us down the right direction because right and wrong really doesn't really matter. It's just what do you think is the right thing in that moment? It's very unpredictable as well. I don't know. And that's literally what I've learned today to where like, dude, honestly, man, I don't know where I'm gonna, what's going to happen in an hour from now. I can predict and be like, hey, we're still having this t- conversation a little bit further deep down the rabbit hole. Or hey, right. my kids are home now and I'm hanging out with them because we ended the podcast because we got done talking early. I don't know. So <laughs> to answer that question, that's kind of where I'm at with it today. It's where it's just like, man, I've just learned that like I'm no different than, you know, the mom who loses a daughter. That's stressful going through those yeah. kinds of environments. Right, I've seen that firsthand. I see what that does to someone from a turmoil, turmoil standpoint, suffering. It's the same idea when you watch your buddies get blown up, and now they have to work on learning how to live life with only two, with no legs. Right. It's it's all very relevant. It's all very similar, right? It's just the story's different. Yeah. What are the when you're going through? Is it? It's not. Obviously, it's not buds because it's not SEAL training, but it's there's some sort of PT structure to your pre-deployment, right? As you're going through and becoming a reconnaissance Marine, what are those, what's like that? I guess it would be like a macro cycle, right? Like yeah. what's the macro cycle of a recon Marine? And, and at what's, well, what is that first? So realistically, I mean, I train a lot of guys individually to get ready for selections like this. And one common thing that I've mm-hmm. seen from it all, right? It'd be buds because I've gotten guys ready for buds. Got one guy in it right now, getting ready to graduate. Have another kid right now in recon school, getting ready to graduate here in two weeks. And the biggest piece that I've seen and something that I can now tie back to when I reflect my time in is I was training for these deployments and getting ready for recon school was the psychological toughness that you need to handle when you are put under the physical fatigue, knowing that hey, I just can't just because I'm struggling to do my hundred thousand push up. It doesn't mean I can quit, right? It's it's being able yeah. to, to to like keep the headspace as strong as possible, you know. And again, that perception that I talked about changes once that bullet flies by your ear, right? Compared to before when it didn't. It's the same idea right. too when you get when you're not exposed to those things, but you again this escalation of force. Maybe that's the theme. Of understanding escalation of force isn't just from a physical standpoint it also can be from a psychological standpoint so the idea would be is like 
we got to get these individuals through these different gates of psychological stress so that they can handle some of that higher stress. Said principle, right? You know, yep. low stress, high stress, low skill, high skill. I approach it the same exact way as I do for a physical training session as I look at it from a psychological. So, you know, if you would have asked me this when I was in, I probably would have been like, oh, dude, I'm rucking 24-7. I'm in the gym all the time. I'm doing all, yes, I am. I'm, I'm training, I'm running, I'm making sure that my body is able to handle it. Even when I'm on deployment, when we come back from these long mission operations or whatever else, like, yes, I'm in the drain training my body, yes. But realistically, I'm training the body so that I can train the mind. Right. That's really what then, we're doing. I mean, at the, if you're on a mission, let's say if you're on a raid or something like that, I mean, physical demands in the moment are wear all your gear, wear your pack, which is what a total of with your firearm, 65, 70 pounds Depending. that you have yeah. on your body. So, you know, if, you, if you're power cleaning 275, you're moving well in excess in that rep of what you're going to need to be able to move right in the moment. But it's the, that 75 pounds doesn't ever come off you until the mission's over. So that is, I mean, Chinese water torture, right? Like the little dot just going like this on your head, it's not that bad, but when it never stops, it's really bad. It drives you insane. So how do you, how do you manage, um, so much of effective training is managing output, right? So intensity recovery and scaling your intensities through your program so that you can either peak and compete or you can, uh, you know, peak your anaerobic conditioning in the meet or something like that. Uh, but again, this, this uh, nonstop under, uh, under recovered, no sleep. And then the, the realness of it, that it's constantly, you could constantly, take a wrong step you could constantly look around the long wrong corner whatever what is that like from a coach's perspective what does that boil down to for you what, what is the trained thing yeah. that keeps the team moving f physically and mentally like that combination yeah. it's not like heart rate right it's not like you're oh you're all you're sitting there and you guys are like hey t you know todd your hrv is not in the right spot we can't move until <laughs> you're like ready <laughs> i mean what are you guys how are you gauging that in real time uh so i'm going to use another military lingo and i again i know we're talking to the masses so i'll break it down as simple as yeah. i can but we we follow this thing called task condition standards right and i feel like those those three words allow for us to understand there's a task there's a condition within that task and there's a standard within completing that task and that there from an operator standpoint you know, from a mission standpoint, from a patrolling standpoint, is how we move through the mission, right? Hey, mm -hmm. you're here to do a thing. That is your primary job, nothing else. One, so we relieve as much stress as possible off the individual and just be like, hey, this is all you're doing. This is the environment you're in. Cool. Yep. But from the task standpoint, you know the task is to protect the guys to the left and right of you. That's the task. I know the mission will have its own task, but like it's, it creates a deeper purpose. You see what I'm doing now? I'm like, taking yeah, yeah. this this approach and I'm layering it a little further into the more of the internal person. So it's like, well, I'm here to take care of the guys who left and right. I mean, if I take care of them, they're going to take care of me. What are the conditions? Right. Well, the conditions are one, what is my condition internally of how I feel right now while I'm in it? And how do I go ahead and navigate that? Which is why you hear a lot of individuals like I had to let go of my humanity. I had to like put that to a side to actually yeah, get wow. through. So the condition of changing who you are so that you can continue to do it. And the standard is, the standard, right? Like you don't quit, 
you step up to this call, you, you do the things, the, the unique things that you're supposed to be doing as a hidden individual. That's the standard, right? You're taking care of those guys. So yeah. when it comes to, you know, physical training, and this is something that I feel like, you know, a lot of people ask me this year so far, because I do train Felipe Andrew, which is one of the number one black belts on the circuit for, yeah. you know, IBJJF. And one of the biggest things I felt like we, we improved on was the mental conditioning out of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because when we were in it for 30, 40 minutes, I'm telling you, dude, Felipe Andrew, I've had him do some, we call it Bulletproof Fridays. He comes in scared, number yeah. one black belt in the world, comes in and he's like, what is coach going to put me through today? Yeah. It's a psychological game. It's no different. I play with the guys that I was getting ready for to go ahead and fight these next generation of war that's coming up. I put thousands of individuals through for four years doing that. It's no different than the way that I train myself. Yeah, I think getting it. So I've always said like, and I guess it's easier to say this on the other side of it, but getting strong is easy. Like when you really think about building strength, it's not a complex thing. You have to show up. Essentially, it's really the thing you have to do. You just have to keep coming to the workout and doing it. But there are a few training sessions in the road to getting physically stronger, like strength to weight, that involve breaking through really gnarly mental barriers. You find this certainly more on anaerobic conditioning work, like when you're you're tired and that the carbon dioxide is building up your body and you feel really uncomfortable and you have to keep going. But with strength work, most of the time, it's uh, the rests are longer, the work is short, and it's fun the whole yeah. time. So if you can get over the soreness, which anyone who's been training for a long time, you learn to like it, uh, that's something that you can just do. Yeah. Mental training is very different. And it is the one... T- type of training that exposes who you actually are separate from who you think you are. And jujitsu is a really interesting environment for that because like you said, these guys are black belts, right? Like they are the, the pinnacle of the form of martial arts. They're the best, the scariest, the most intense. But most of the time in big matches in ADCC and whatever, somebody gives up. Like to some degree, somebody quits to the other guy that day in that moment. And it's not to say that if they ran it back on another time, it wouldn't happen the same way. It could totally switch. But most times somebody mentally destroys the other dude and you know it's happening because they're both so damn good physically and technically. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that gives. And I can only imagine, only imagine in those settings, those war theater settings, that psychological part like to break down the will of your enemy or the will of the insurgents in the community that's how you actually win yep the battle yep right you nailed it dude that is spot on and that's what i was getting ready to say was it's the duration of the dripping of the water on the head when you're getting Mm it hour six it's the duration of rockets going over your head every 30 minutes it's the duration of just being shot at every five minutes it's the duration and then that lasts over six hours seven hours right so bringing it full circle into the idea of like oh well how did i develop mental conditioning or mental toughness in someone what i did with felipe andrew and some other individuals and then my individuals who i work with to go into the military special operations world is no different it's not it's not like I'm sitting there and giving these random tasks and 
No, what I'm giving them is an intentional in the moment present. And when you're at, when you're in at minute 40 and I told you you can't go over a heart rate of 150, meaning that you are now no longer in an anaerobic state, you're pure aerobic, meaning that you have to yeah. go ahead and maintain your heart rate, maintain staying in the thing, staying in the workout, but you're 45 minutes in now and you feel bored or you're now just mentally tired of having to stay on task. That's when I wow. actually can build mental toughness. There's a small little nugget there I just handed out. Something I don't share with anybody. Leticia, yeah. which is Felipe's wife, she's like, don't share the secrets. <laughs> because that's a yeah. small thing. And it's not a secret. I didn't learn that. I I, I, I learned that from somebody else who I've seen do so it. So wait, to you me. actually, you take, uh, let's unpack this. That's really interesting because I've actually not really thought of it this way too. Because you think of high intensity in the bout means let's make sure that we hit enough higher intensity variations in your training over the week so that you're prepared for it. But you purposely put a mental gruel on aerobic. So with oxygen lower heart yeah. for that for that individual right like this would be not about to throw up not starting to feel like you're going to pop out of your skin this is very manageable work especially for an elite athlete but you push that manageable workout for a really long time to purposely create boredom within their session so that they have to work through that mm -hmm. wow that's actually a really interesting mental tactic how did they warfare. respond to that? Psychological yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> How do they respond? Fine to it. In the moment, it's yeah. it's miserable. But when they get done, they walk out of there not broken, not beat up, right. mentally exhausted. And now sometimes they either have either trained jiu-jitsu either already or they haven't trained it yet at all. So I just dug a hole for them to when they go spar now, they have to learn how to fight from that deficit because of the fact what I had just done to them before. Right. That's really interesting. It, it, would you say you pull that from you pull that from military experience or where did that pull where that did that idea develop? I pulled it from a few different teachers. Um, one of the teachers is obviously the military, you know, going through special operations school and then as well as being an instructor at the schoolhouse. So the, the external teacher was being an instructor. The second teacher would be, um, you know, there are a couple of teachers. It's Mark Twight and Michael Blevins at a nonprofit. Um, and okay. what they do a lot of the times when I, when I started kind of learning what they did was they utilize more of the psychological piece in training sessions to go ahead and open it up to make changes because they've worked with Interesting. movie stackers. So have you ever heard of Mark Twight, yep. Jim Jones and those guys, he no longer owns, he created Jim, wait, Jim Jones, like out of, uh, Salt Lake city. Uh, it used to be, yeah. That's so, 300. They trained yes. as 300 guys. Yes. That's Mark Twight. Maximus, so Mark, Bobby Maximus. That's not who owned it. This is I'm, I'm going. You're about to take no. a history lesson right now. The yeah, owner and go. creator <laughs> of Jim Jones in 2006, 2007 was Mark Twight. Yeah. He is the one gotcha. that actually trained the 300 movie actors. That is the truth. Truth. Yeah. Everything from there and is his. Yep, yeah, go for it. Was Bobby his protege to some degree? I don't believe so. No, not at all. I don't believe so. Not the way you I know, look at You know it. who Bobby... Yeah, I know who he is. But you yeah. know who I'm talking about. 100%, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure I got the characters right. Yep, yep. nope. Uh, so over time... Interesting. So over time, Jim Jones blew up. Mark Twight pulled yep. himself out of it, moved on. Sold it to gotcha. Lisa and all of them. Yep. They now run it. End of story. It's not my okay. story to share. But, fair, fair. Respect but that. Mark Twight and Michael Blevins, what they were doing with actors was this approach of psychological conditioning so that they could get them to actually peak 
in those scenes when they needed to to get their bodies in the physical conditioning that they needed to. Again, the mental conditioning led to the physical conditioning, led to the physical appearance. That's what's really did. interesting. I started seeing him apply it to endurance athletes, shooters, all different types of people. Yep. I got to witness it firsthand and be a part of it for multiple years and get really close with them to learn how they approached it. And that's what I ended up learning from them was how do I go ahead and take this thing? And then the endurance world. The endurance world was another teacher for me. And that's long duration time periods I found moving over 100 miles for, for through the mountains for 30 hours plus. That duration of time, what it taught me was like, oh, wow, this is enduring. We are literally enduring. I'm learning that endurance right. is love. I had to learn to love myself. So this goes so much far deeper now into just building yeah. mental endurance, mental conditioning, mental toughness, mental flexibility. I can give you so many different labels on how we look at this. But it brought it all back. So those three external teachers, motivators, mentors, right, really helped me understand how to apply that. And then my time as a full-time weightlifter. I mean, I've, I've weightlifted pretty pretty competitively, I feel like, early on in the days. I always like talking with people about Olympic weightlifting because of the the style of lifting and what it takes to get proficient. And I don't mean the initial improvements in strength that you get just from the fact that you're taking on something new. Like if you've never done uh, clean before and you start to learn the mechanics of a clean and your squats at 185 pounds, at some point you're going to clean a pretty substantial amount of weight and it's going to feel great. Five years later, six years later, eight years later, you're fighting for kilos. I mean, you're, you're working around the clock constantly under stress to gain an extra 2.2 pounds in a year on some of your lifts in the best setting, in the performance that you aim for. So it's a specific type of person that develops a knack for that style of lifting over powerlifting, over functional fitness, over CrossFit, where you're really pursuing this grueling, enduring version of strength training. How did you find Olympic lifting, and what was it about that that made you go, I got to learn more about this? Dude, so weightlifting for me started back when I got back from Afghanistan in 2011. Um, I started going over to a CrossFit gym called Offshore CrossFit and it was ran by a guy named Joe Linton and Jason Lavoy. And Jason Lavoy actually had been weightlifting his whole, I think, middle school and high school career under Coach Bergner. So Coach Bergner used to coach as weightlifting coach down at Rancho Bernardo High School. Um, and he had a lot of students there. He used to have guys go up and they just go up to his gym and train out of there. And Jason was one of them. And I started, you know, getting into weightlifting because of CrossFit, honestly, at that time period, I started learning how to clean. I started learning how to snatch. Um, and honestly, I kind of just really fell in love with the movement, like the art of it. I've always been an artist. Um, I love painting. I love drawing. I love playing music, yeah. even though I don't play it as much as I should be. Um, it's just all of those things. And, you know, when I saw the movement of a snatch taking, you know, the bar from the floor all the way to over your head in this beautiful, you know, expression of strength and power and flexibility, you name it and everything. I was like, man, that's really cool. Yeah. And I kind of just started like really just watching it being coached to other people. And that was Jason. I used to just sit there and watch him coach weightlifting, watch him coach weightlifting. I yep. mean, just never, never said a thing, just watched him coach. And I started getting into it more. 
just like you said, like, hey, you know, your strength is, you know, front squatting 225 for a double, and then all of a sudden we go a clean 155. But there's a point where, you know, you... technically as sound as possible but if you're you you know if you're not strong you're not gonna be lifting heavy weight and I got to learn that through a couple of coaches that I worked under named Caleb Williams yeah. and Kelly Williams and Caleb Williams used to be I think the 74 kilo uh, senior uh, clean and jerk world record for a while back in like 2012 or some time period like that but he also was a big time power lifter he came from the powerlifting world and you know little short stocky guy out of georgia just massive squat of the world deadlift the world you know but you watch him clean and jerk it was just this fast yeah. explosive movement heavy load you know and he could front squat 400 cold any day of this you know i don't know about now weights in the snatch and the clean and jerk but as well as we needed to be able to move really well we needed to have explosiveness we needed to be powerful we needed to not only just be strong from an absolute standpoint but we had to be you know the term people use is strength and speed together had to be very very high meaning that i could snatch you know if i'm snatching 90 percent of my clean and jerk there's a little bit of uh, inefficiency there, right? Like the clean and jerk should be a little bit higher because we look at the 80-85. But I knew like once we started balancing those numbers out, we start seeing yep. numbers go up. And, you know, I'm all over the place with this because of the fact that like when I look it could be ultra running, it could be playing golf, it could be any of those types of endeavors, but the goal is to be able to do everything else around it really well to amplify it. What I learned being a weightlifter was that for me to amplify the snatch and the clean and jerk, I had to get stronger, I had to be more mobile, I had to sleep better, I had to recover, I had to eat more calories. Because you're right, it's simple, repetitive, and boring. <laughs> you know? It's and but it's the it's it's the type of person that likes that boring. I appreciate that. It, you're willing to. It's it's almost not like a. <laughs> this is so deep for like a conversation <laughs> on weightlifting, but it's not like a. Like masochistic, but it's most of the time. All, if actually, if you graphed all your time as if if you graphed all your time as a weightlifter, and you looked at the percentage of that graph time that you're spending performing the best version of that lift, it's like point zero five percent, ninety nine point oh whatever percent is spent doing sub maximal, not the most you can do, focusing on technique, focusing on yeah. small adjustments. And that's a mind game. It's a mind game. Totally. You have to you have to show up forty minutes sometimes before your session because your body's banged up in the twelfth week of your cycle and really get yourself ready to go. Then you gotta do all your bar reps, which when you look in a gym, people don't do bar reps, right? They go, they put twenty fives on the bar and they start squatting. Olympic weightlifters learn to respect. 
that you start with the bar because the bar primes the mechanics. The mechanics prime the movement. The movement allows you to do the lift. And then the lift allows you to later move more weight. So it's like this accepting of the process that you have to be part of that's super unique to it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I look at priming the barbell movement with a snatch and clean and jerk just as much as I look at priming my system to get ready to go for a long run. Um, and something I learned from the endurance world that I apply now to today in terms of training is, you yeah. know, in weightlifting, a lot of high-level coaches count reps over a, a macro cycle, right? Like, you can talk to someone like, oh, yeah, volume of reps, right? Like, hey, for example, like, uh, your volume. I know he counts a lot of his athletes' reps to go ahead and yeah, see yeah, some yeah. of those things, especially he uses velocity-based training. And it's like, I think it's great and it's yep. awesome. But what I learned from the endurance world, to me to build that that mental and physical fatigue on the body well let's go ahead and take those hours of training and apply it to a professional weightlifter how many hours are they training a week about similar but you got to think about it right like they're in the gym i mean 12 hours a week is three hours a day of training three times four that's all that is if you think about that's not very much so if a weightlifter is training, you know, six days a week, right. two to three hours a day right. for that, they're hitting that total number of training volume. So you are hitting all of those little tiny pieces within those that training block. And I found that the more that you spin at those higher hours of training is where we really do develop that, you know, the attention to detail. Because you can't just snatch and clean and jerk heavy 12 hours a week. There's no way. No, your body can't handle it. Yeah, you can't recover fast enough. Oh, uh, George, can you pull your the headphones out of the, the plug there? Um, yeah, it teaches you. I you know I had been an athlete, um, my whole life. I had trained so many different modalities. Jujitsu and weightlifting taught me more about how to take care of myself than anything else I had ever done, for sure. Because there are two things that don't, you cannot continue to perform them if you neglect your body. And you see this in any academy you ever go to. Because what are people dealing with? Neck injuries, hamstring injuries, knee injuries, ankle injuries. But they just keep training until they hit the wall and then they quit. You have to respect it. Like you have to actually carve, actively carve time out of your week that you will dedicate towards not dialing it up, but actually dialing it down. And that's a hard thing to do when you're someone who gets enjoyment and <laughs> a good feeling out of exertion. When you like exertion, when yeah, you like man. to gr- grind through it, it's hard. It's a discipline in and of itself man, it's, to learn how to take care of yourself. Because this is something that I, I am doing myself right now, especially through my jiu-jitsu journey. And I have to thank Endurance and all my previous youth hours of training of thinking that I can go hard in the paint 24 seven. It's, it's just not doable anymore, especially at 35 for me. I, and and yep. realistically, man, like I just can't do jujitsu seven days a week. Like it, I just get bored with it. I'm not going to lie to you. I literally said that if I do jujitsu seven days a week, I get bored and burnt yeah. out. I've just learned that. That's just who I am. It's the same thing with, if I run for seven days a week, I get burnt right. out. If I do that consistently, it's the same thing with anything we do. So I've learned to really have this, again, this artist and martial arts mindset of like, I can integrate all these different things to allow for me to be consistent in the things I love doing, except that it's an, it's an ego thing. Totally. 
Totally. It, it's a hard part to go. It, it, because here, here's what you do. You spend your whole life, it, and, and you much more than me, because of the theater with which you've tested all of this stuff, right? You, you build yourself up. That's what it, your life does. It builds up your, your capabilities, what you think you can do, the things that you've pushed yourself through mentally, you've overcome, adversity, yada, yada, yada. And then you get to this point where you're like, wait, but that's not like an endless uh, cycle that you can push through. There has to be something where, yes, maybe at the tip of the spear when you're defending the country, 100%. you override that system, right? You go, you know what? I'm not going to sleep for six days and we got tons of ammo and we're going to handle this situation. Okay. That's the time when you do that, that time. But when you're back here or, or when you're going through your life, you do, you have to regulate to mm -hmm. get the most out of what you can do. Otherwise you, you force yourself into a wall all the time. Well, it goes back to what I said, this escalation of force. Totally. It, it's, it's literally the S it, for example, what jujitsu taught me to answer your question finally, is that <laughs> I don't have to go into a jiu-jitsu sparring session or a class and thinking that I have to go at 100% the whole time. I am right. in control of my level of force I apply for that day. Mm -hmm. And I've learned to do that, and it's allowed me to actually enjoy jiu-jitsu in a way that I'm just playing, I'm just moving. It's a movement, it's a movement flow session for me for the day. It's right. allowing me to express the way I move. I love movement play. I just love it. But jiu-jitsu for me now means I get to play that movement around somebody's body. Right. And there's going to be some days where the person's better than me and they're going to beat me, obviously, right? More time on the mat, more hours spent, the higher ranking belt. I expect to outsmart me, to outskill me and all those things because of the time on that. But at the same time, I'm still going to move with you very well and very clear and very efficient because I understand the escalation of force that I need to apply in those moments. When you're at, at, at training, um, what feels applicable to the time that you spent in the fort? Like, I feel like there's often times we're doing things in jujitsu under the, the guise of like self-defense or de-escalation. And I'm like, I talk to other guys that are like former MARSOC dudes or, uh, special forces operators that I, I have the pleasure of training with. And, they're like, look, you go into a room and some guy advances on you over there. It's You go three on one. Someone takes the legs. Someone takes the upper body. Someone takes the upper body again. That's what you do. There's none of this. Uh, I'm not grabbing the collar. I'm not grabbing the sleeve. There's zero error margin. It's two on one, three on one every single time, no matter what, to the ground, finish the job. And I'm like damn, here we are playing like, you know, patty cakes in our pajamas and everyone thinks that they're becoming super capable out in the world. Uh, every day that I train jiu-jitsu makes me want to get in an altercation less and less and less and less and less. How much of it actually transfers to something like that? You go into a, on a raid into a unit and there's someone there and you're hand-to-hand, -hand, face to face What is that like? I had a conversation with this with a, a mentor of mine who spent 20 years in the military. And we were actually talking about the idea of violence, what real violence is, and how to actually accept it and mm -hmm. actually to, to not walk away from it, but to approach it when you need to. And that's the difference is, you know, what you just expressed was that part of violence was needed to, to, to de-escalate and get rid of 
the threat, right? And that's the same headspace in a real fight. My way to de-escalate a threat is by walking away. It's not by going and killing it. It's not by going and killing that thing that's a threat. It's to get away as fast as possible. But if I am unable to get away, I have the skill set and the reaction and the mental fortitude to de-escalate the threat by hand. Right. That's that's the way I look at that. So it's understanding violence. There's a, a book about about that that just got written by uh, this guy in I'm totally butchering this. This dude in Oregon, he's a, a, a black belt, and he just wrote a book called, I think it's called Understanding Violence or okay. something like that. But it's about about all this. It's about that painting that picture for yourself. And I, it's funny, you know, there's a bravado that's definitely tagged on to martial arts, I think, especially now with the growth of the sports and ADCC and the UFC and one and just like it, it, there's so much more present. You don't have to be like this fringe fight fan to be exposed to fight sports, whereas in the past, like if you weren't, I mean, boxing was mainstream and you had Muhammad Ali and Roberto Duran and George Foreman and all these guys that were like big stars, but it was still fringe sport compared to football, compared to baseball, basketball. And fight sports is really pushing into the mainstream, right? And as a result, it's exciting. You can you can get involved at a younger age. You can learn to defend yourself, to stick up for yourself. It's all available now. Uh, but with that, there is this like, there's a smugness that is apparent sometimes in the. It's like the I think in the past martial arts dissolved the ego. Martial arts was this thing that dissolved it. And now you're seeing that in some cases it's actually enriching it. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. Why? Because as an athlete, ego can be a good thing. It can be a driver. If you don't want to beat the guy next to you and you're an athlete, that's uh, that's not good, right? Because <laughs> you're not going to show up and train hard enough to overcome that. So ego can be valuable. But you're seeing it like tilt the scale a little bit in the martial arts world. And every time I talk to someone like yourself, it is so grounding and so humbling to just be reminded that there's people, there are people out there who have put their life on the line literally and actually understand on a personal level and a collective level what the shit really is about. Yeah. And it is different and it's real and it's not what we're talking about in the academies. <laughs> I'll tell you this, dude. I'll tell you this. You said it multiple times in, in, in your sentence. Is this right here? Yeah. Is it's a sport. You need egos in a sport. Yeah. You need it. You need it. If we want, and I, I, I dude, I'm gonna tell you this right now. I want the egos in the sport to grow the sport. I 100 percent do. Yeah. Gordon Ryan's, Nick Melagali's, the Victor Hugo's. These you see him making his own brand now. Why? Yeah. Because it puts money in their pockets. And if totally you can go ahead and get people to do that. But you're right. When it comes to the sport of jiu-jitsu and then the change of actually a, someone who enjoys the sport of jiu-jitsu but trains for life, there yeah. needs to be that conversation of understanding violence and understanding that yes. violence isn't a sport. War is not a sport. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu is a sport when you compete. And yes, is it very dangerous? And yes, do you ride that line? Yes, but that line, the letters in that line are not ABC like they are for war. They're DEFG, which means they're different. And yeah. that's, 
that's where we need to go ahead and highlight that is, yeah, you're right. Realistically, just because I'm being trained to go ahead and fight somebody, like in jiu-jitsu, doesn't mean that I should go and fight someone out in fucking real life. Because you're going to learn Not really quick. You're going to learn really <laughs> fast. I'm going to be honest, some of that shit doesn't work. Yeah. Some of it doesn't I know, work. it's <laughs> very early on at, at Gracie, one of our former professors is a former Bellator fighter. And it was just so fun to talk to him about uh, the stuff we do. And I liked when he led class because a lot of times he would use applicable kind of like, I guess, more more mixed martial arts, like MMA style jujitsu, which which I would love to see more of actually in a lot of schools. But it was cool because then you would see how he looks at real life situations, how he assesses them. And uh, it is different. It is. I'm not. I don't want to be on my back grabbing onto your. Like I, dude. I love jujitsu. I love jujitsu. I have a podcast where I talk about jujitsu <laughs> the majority true. of the time. Right. I'm like a fan. Right. This is good for me. Uh, but I can see the forest for the trees, and I know that if if you're in a the road rage altercation, right. The last thing I'm doing is slapping your hand and lying down on my back and putting my legs in the air. <laughs> you know, like no, it's, never, it's, never. No, it's no. Like that's like. So the interesting part about that, right, is like I really like the fact that you utilize MMA because that is actually as close as we can get to what war kind of looks like or what it would feel like. Right. It, it, and I know you're like bullets, but I'm talking about the weapon is your fist, the weapon is your knee, yeah. the weapon is your elbow, the weapon is the foot, the weapon is the leg. And when we go ahead and get in real life altercations, if we don't respect those weapons, what do they do to us? They can kill us. It's the same idea when we go and look at, for example, remember when Nate Diaz put that one dude in a headlock straight off the bat? Because he respected his weapons. (laughs) He respected his weapons, brother. You're telling me you want for 100% Nate Diaz could have won to the dude. But guess what? That dude is not conditioned enough to handle a blow to the face by a pro MMA fighter. Because guess what would have happened to that kid? He would have fallen back and hit his head, and who knows? Who knows what, right? And that's what Nate Diaz didn't want to do. He wanted to manage the violence of it. Escalation of force. Yeah. You know, it's funny. When you talk to people who've seen that clip that don't train uh, any kind of martial arts, or someone who's seeing it kind of in passing, it can look barbaric. They're like, oh, my God, that guy. You know, like, but we all know what happened. He... Nate Diaz saved that dude's life, and Nate Diaz controlled that situation to the nth degree, and he he set the guy down gently on Bourbon Street. You know, show me how many other people that got in an altercation that week were pol- were gently set down on the ground. You know, like one hundred. That's the difference. That is the difference of it. understanding violence at its highest capability. One thing we got taught in the Marine Corps was like never get in fights in the public because your hands are now considered lethal weapons. We got told that. That, hey, but how many fights did Marines get into all the time in the fucking in, in, in civilian world? All the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a byproduct of it. I used to get in a lot of fights all the time. Yeah. Because why? Because we were learning how to develop this escalation of force where in the Marine Corps, it was zero to 100, killed yeah. or be killed. Right. Going to answer your question when we first started was it's retaught me how to escalate force and violence and we're going to apply it now. It's literally what you just taught me. When you were deployed in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, how common is it that you come hand to hand? 
in my time, dude, it was very, very uncommon. And if that happened, yeah. things were not good. Like if you, got, I was gonna say, like that's if, bad. That's real bad. Like, oh, that's, can you that's, uh, can oh, you sorry. pull that that mic out? Yeah, yeah. just like uh, you could unplug it or just hold it out like that. It's perfect. Oh, cool. um, yeah, that seems like the worst. It's something you want to know how to do, but that couldn't be a worse situation, right? That that shows loss of control, yep. right? Yeah. It will. So the idea is this, and I'm pretty sure I, I can. I'm not going to speak for everyone, but those like in Iraq during Fallujah, Ramadi, Baghdad, some of those big, big battles where they were going building to building, some of them got into hand-to-hand combat, right? Because the insurgents in the room, you're being attacked, or the insurgent doesn't have a weapon, but they have a knife or a machete coming at you. You're yeah. fucking muzzle-thumping the dude, butt-stalking him and taking him down and potentially getting to your knife to cut his throat. I'm not lying. Like, that's, that is legitimately... A sequence that we have been taught if someone's running at you with a knife in an open in an in a open room fucking boom boom and get to your weapon as quick as possible or putting two in the dude's chest yeah <laughs> so well you don't know how, how do you think in that i guess you don't right you operate that's i just asked the same question yeah. to an athlete that i'm working with he is he is a part of a swat unit that he was involved in a shooting in a state I'm not going to say the state, whatever. Keep it light. Keep it yeah. professional. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. And he had a gun pulled on him while he was in his vehicle 20 yards away. Think about that. You're in your vehicle. Someone's like, hey, dude, there's a gun being pointed at you. You look over. Guess what his first reactions were? The car was already on, so just know that. The truck was already on. The truck was already on. Yeah. He fucking hit the brake, pulled it into drive, sped off. Within 10 seconds, he was out of his vehicle and two rounds were into the dude's chest. Like that. And I asked him, I was like, what made you react so quick? Because it was his first time ever getting into a shooting altercation, especially on the civilian side of the house. And he was like, dude, he was like, to survive. I wasn't ready to die that day. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack, man. That's... Within split seconds, dude, he was skidded out, and luckily the dude had no rounds in that mat in that weapon. He wanted right. to be shot by the police to take him out, so he was just using that. But he didn't know that until after he shot the dude. Right. But in split seconds, foot on the pedal, drive, jumped out, two to the chest, out of his side. Think about that. All of those movements out of a vehicle, behind a car, do- behind that vehicle door, two to the dude, right away. Think about that. And his first round missed. Right. It's all training. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> it's, training. It is. Yeah. It, it I truly mean, you is. Look at, you know, you drive, whenever I drive up to LA, I see the little like uh, CQB houses and uh, the little like shoot houses and stuff that they train with that are right off the road there. And I'm like, Occasionally, I'll see units actually training. And you're like, wow, you would just hope that they're training every single second, you know, every single second, so that in the event that you have to do anything, you're not thinking about it. It's, I mean, it's like, uh, think of how clunky jujitsu is when you start, right? Because you're thinking about every move you're doing. You're like, should I, should, am I supposed to grab the lapel? Should I grab the sleeve? Should I wait? Scissor sweep is if I undo guard and, and if you're operating that, it's like learning a language. Like uh, when I learned to speak, like I studied Spanish in college, when I learned to speak it, 
you think about the conjugation in your head and then you say the word. You think about the number, then you do the numbers in your head and you say the word. And there's that lag time. And the problem is that real life situations don't account for lag time because you can't when it's high risk. And so if it's not intuitive, if it's not flow, like you said, you have no control over what's going to happen. But the better you get, the more that you train, it becomes like you're, you got the lapel and the sleeve and you didn't even think about getting either of them. It just mm -hmm. happens. Yep. Yeah. How how do you how do you go through the world, the civilian world, after being in places like Iraq and Afghanistan on like you said, part of this five percent of people who actually enlist and deploy and then when they deploy, deploy to an uh, active, live, real war. What is being home? Like, how do you go through the world? How, how does this feel on a 24-hour cycle compared that, to that? That's So going back to when I was transitioning out of the military, um, mm -hmm. I was lost. Uh, and the reason why I say that was because yeah. I didn't know how to talk with people with the lens in which I saw the world in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I told the wife this the other day. I was like, I always have a plan to go ahead and defend myself whenever I walk into a room. And she was like, what? It's, but that's real. That's real. Like, yeah. Every time you go into a room, you're like, exit. I'm not sitting there. I won't sit there. I have to face this. That's real every single time. To take it even further, who's the most dangerous threat in here? That's so wild. You Every time. Most of the time. Yeah. hundred percent. My wife will tell that's you the same thing. So impressive. Like, and it's just by nature. It just happens. Even if I'm in a, yeah, in a friendly totally. area, even when I walk into a dojo yeah. to do jujitsu, I look for who the most dangerous person is in that room. And you know what? Usually it's never the black belt. Yeah. Never. Never. It's, it's, it's the style. It's the 225 pound white belt collegiate D1 wrestler who, <laughs> who just came him. from like not the construction him. job, right? Not even him. Who is it? It is. It doesn't even matter what belt. It is the individual who was having a rough time outside of the dojo who is using the dojo to express their violence on others because it makes them feel better. Wow. I never would have. Yeah. Wow, that's a trip. I, I wouldn't have considered that at all. So you're... Yeah. So you read... Uh, I wonder if that's... Do you think that that's from the style of military that you, that you were part of, like being in reconnaissance, so much of that is high EQ. Like you have to be able to read people and situations without being able to communicate with either of those two things to get information back to decision makers, right? Yep. Psychological first aid is what I call it today. Well said, yeah. Wow, so what are, you walk into a room you're in a restaurant with your family. What are what what's like a sign that you would pick up? How without having the ability to talk to someone, you know, how do you pick up on that kind of thing? That like, all right, I'm gonna keep an eye and eye on that person. I, I first look for the first individual that's by themselves in there. So who's in there? By like themselves? not by themselves, waiting by themselves, by themselves. Correct. Yeah. By themselves, just sitting by themselves. Okay, cool. First, all right, sweet. Second, I look for groups of two. All right, what do those groups of two look like? What are they doing? How are they talking? Are they presenting themselves some way? How is their body language? Right, just like similar stuff like that. 
it's it's that's the way who's who's the most quiet in the room when there's a, a group of conversation why isn't that person communicating with us why are they in the back corner just hanging out doing their own thing so these are just like a, a constant slew of outliers in a way you're just yeah. looking for in any situation the outlier so you you you're on patrol yep. you guys pull up into a new city or a new village and you're looking for outliers in the social setting. What's the anomaly within the baseline? Yeah. The baseline is, that is the not, 200. Is that, stress, is that stressful, man? Like, is that stressful to go through? I hear that, and I'm like, all right, on one side of this, that's like, it sounds like paranoia, even though I know it's not. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> on the other side of it is like, wow, what if one time, what if one time in the rest of your life that saves you, your family, your family member, or someone else who happens to be there? What if? Right? Then it, every single day the paranoia was worth it and you would have done you would have doubled down on the paranoia and and kept it every single day, right? It it's that one instance that it's it's happened. It's like keeping I don't own firearms, but people that do it's you hope it never happens but in the one time that it does if someone does break into your house you don't want to be looking for something to defend yourself right but is there a psychological toll to that constant assessment of danger constant assessment of violence or the potential for it or the environment for it do you feel like that at all I write, I, I don't know, I write a lot. So I've said this in mm -hmm. plenty of my writings lately, is I feel like sometimes I'm on a psychotic break because the paranoia sometimes mm. plays a game with me. Sometimes, like, you know, I meet new people. I'm like, why are they, in, why are they coming yeah. into my life for? Like, what are they trying to, what intel are yeah. they collecting? You know, like, that's the game sometimes. Sometimes I just got to shut it off. And, and there's other times where, like, I have to prepare myself walking into a big group of people. I have to prepare myself to do all these things. So it's again, if you're noticing, I, I'm a very, I, I try to be very aware of my presence, trying to be very aware of my actions. Yeah. I mean, I've really taken, you know, question you asked, like, what have you learned from the military that you apply today? It's being in that present moment. What did you and your guys do when you guys were going on patrol and having to stay a hard target? It was doing all of the small little things very well. And that's what actually what high speed is, right? The fundamentals isn't doing, the fundamentals are the fundamentals. But dominating the fundamentals is what really high speed is. And that's something that I feel like even today I've relied back to. I just learned that that's just part of what keeps me, keeps me in that mode of being safe and letting me be aware of my areas because it helped me yeah. in deployment and it helped me in a time where life and death would at its, its highest and it's going to help me even when the escalation or the environment is different. Yeah. It's just recognizing the environments in which I walk into and I surround myself into. I mean, I think that this stuff's really important because... I don't know. I don't hear conversations about this stuff that often, to be honest. And there, there have to be other people dealing with the same exact thing, you it's, know, who have put, yeah. put their life on the line, come back. And from master chiefs that I've had on the show to former Rangers yourself, it's so common. Like there's such common experiences and, there, for everyone who speaks about this as you do, as openly and as aware, or as some of the other guests have, there was a point when they didn't. 
there was a point where they were really scared to talk about stuff or they didn't know how to communicate and it would uh, present itself in public or in a stressful situation or a family gathering or whatever. And it was like this, where do I reach? Who do I talk to? What What's going on? And they felt so isolated. And then you realize that like, it's super normal. It's mm-hmm. super normal to feel that way after yeah. you go through something so traumatic where you are on to a degree that most people will never understand. And you're constantly on all the time until you come back. And then the expectation is that you just turn that light switch off. Like that's unrealistic. Yeah. So it's literally learning how to bridge those experiences and those skills and those lessons to apply them to civilian world today. Meaning that Mm -hmm. the skills that you learned in the combat zone, the skills you learned as an infantryman, the skills you learned as an admin clerk, the skills you learned as a combat medic, whatever skills you learn in your MOS, military operations uh, specialty, all have the skills to be transferred over into civilian life today to actually utilize them. Right, like that is the, the conversation and something I've called, I, I call it universal language and Mark Twight actually had, did a conversation with me about this because we did a podcast on endurance and we called it Endurance is Love. And I was utilizing some different type of in, uh, language in terms of the guest or the audience we were speaking to. And he came to me afterward and he was like, hey dude, I know you have all this experience in these stories. He's like, but you need to learn how to change your color cup to the group of people you're talking to. So if your cup is purple and their cup is red, you need to turn your cup red. You don't need to make their cup purple. And that's something that I've learned to do. And I now I took that concept and I've applied it to this universal language of skill sets. I need to be able to take my purple cup of skills and apply it to an environment that's red, meaning that they need to be some way, some shape or form applied in that manner. And then from there we move on to the next environment. What does an octopus do? Well, they're crazy, man. I mean, they change colors, they disappear, they... (laughs) 100%, 100%, 100%. I view myself as an octopus as a human being. When I walk into someone's, like if I walk into a certain environment, I'm going to go ahead and mold and become that so that I can survive within it. I'm going to go ahead and walk into another, I'm going to mold into that to survive and be a part of it. So the idea is learning how to be able to flex between environments to one, still be who you are, but also respect the environment that you're in. And I think, again, being in a war zone, it taught me to respect that environment because everything out there was trying to fucking kill you. Excuse my language, but it was true. It was like, yeah, it's real. It's, tr- it's true. So it's the same thing today. I look at it and it's like, all right, cool. I got to learn this universal language of skill sets that apply to what I'm doing today, right? Like, it's the reason why I went to, go, went to school to get a bachelor's in sports psychology emphasized on performance psychology. Now I'm getting my master's in English emphasized on higher education to adults. Yeah. Like, cause, it's a constant pursuance of excellence. <laughs> yeah, but it's also being able to get all these skills, right? And then yeah. I'm learning to apply them today and then share, share and showcase that to those who are also coming into this time period and this transition into civilian world from the military or right. law enforcement or firefighting or whatever it is. The idea is to be able to recognize the skill sets that kept you alive and gave you the things that you are today that are positive and transition them over into the other world and then learn how to do that in everything you do. Is there any uh, like feelings of, of remorse or like regret coming back from time in battle? For the longest time, I thought I carried remorse, 
I thought I carried this regret. But at the end of the day, it was actually what I was meant to do. It was, it was the reason why I was put onto this earth was to go and be in that environment and do that thing. So I couldn't look at it from a remorse or regret standpoint or however we want to frame it. Yeah. I had to start self-endorsing that I really did live in that time period. That's what I did and accept it. And once I started to accept what the things that I did, it allowed me to look at the things I did in a way different lens or a way different perspective or perception, however yeah. you want to look at it. For me, it's not the fact that I got to kill people, I got to be on patrols with friends, I got to do all these things. For me, it's the fact that I was viewed as exactly as the enemy, as the Taliban was viewed to us. Mm-hmm. When I'm trying to be the best human being on this planet as possible. So how does that make me a better human by me going to someone else's country, knocking on their door at night, nighttime, sending, you know, all those things. How does that make me better? Right. That's the conflict. Because right. everyone wants to congratulate us be like, oh, you did a good job protecting our country doing this. Like, but how am I no different than the Taliban? How am that's, I no different? So th- that's the thing that I, I always, it, it, it like stops me in my tracks whenever I see there's a conflict of any kind. I mean, let it just be said that there are forms of evil on this earth presently that are, that's 100%. what they are. That's 100%. just what they are. Like, 100%. If, you're, if you're willing if you are willing in the name of anything to put a suicide vest on a child and send it into a group of people and convince that child that they should detonate it, if 100%. that's what you're willing to do, that is evil in realization. There is no form worse than that. So that just needs to be said. In the, that same context, when there's a conflict, both sides feel righteous. And that's an interesting, it's just like an interesting thing about it to me that on either side of it, they feel the exact same towards the other side. So you go on a raid with your team to gain reconnaissance and you run into the enemy. You know that they've put vests on kids. Do you need any more convincing than that? Probably not, right? And they look at you as the worst representation of human culture in existence, right? Like that clash of ideas, it's just uh, like profound. It's as simple as this. It becomes personal. Yeah. It becomes personal because that same person, that same enemy who put a vest on the kid or gave the kid an uh, a machine gun with all the dingles and gadgets that run all over it and had him run across the open field and we had to open fire on him with a 240 machine gun fire right because he's a threat now right that's a thing four-year-old five six seven eight-year-old kid running across open danger field with the m with the with the machine gun that's real life right yeah because they believe that we're a certain thing it's personal to them it's no different than them taking out one of our guys who steps on the ied or gets shot in the head it now becomes personal so now Guess what? Hey, you know how it is. Everyone thinks takes personal. It can get really ugly. Do you think that there's a, a I guess, let me, let me rephrase that. What are your thoughts on peace? You need peace and you need, and you need evil. You need suffering and you need happiness. You need sun. You need the, you need the dark. Um, I'm, a, I'm learning to become a storyteller 
And one thing I'm learning is contrast. And that contrast is what makes life so rich. So we need peace yeah. as much as we need evil or turmoil. And we need vice versa. It's just the way it is. You ever watch a movie? What happens? There's contrast every single time. Because it keeps you brought right. in. That's what life is. So when you ask me, I like... Think for, for yeah. When I... When I uh, Whenever I say, like, thank you for your service, I really mean it. And I think underneath that, what I'm really saying is it's like a, a an acknowledgement that I, I wasn't willing psychologically, morally to go do what you did. You know, and that that's like, I think that's what it comes down to. You take on and wear something that millions of us would never wear. Don't have to, you know. I get to wake up and just go about my day, do my things, and go train jujitsu and work out and live a sweet life. And I never have to see a blown up child. I never have to watch my friend blow up in front of me. It, you know, there's so many things that I don't have to do, and I can know that seeing a world where I I would agree. I there's the yin and the yang is it's constant. It's always been there. And I think it's just the nature of our species. It'll always be there. And there's some people that wear that wear that. And there's some that don't. And they're th like, you have to have an appreciation for that on some level, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's kind of honestly, man, like at the point of where I'm at today, dude, I've just learned to appreciate everything that I've like been through up to this point. Right. Like we didn't even talk about my childhood. Like, like, the reason why I joined the Marine Corps was to get out of my childhood. I was a, you know, from the age of 14 till I joined the Marine Corps, I was a, a crackhead, weighing 150 yeah. pounds, dude. Like, it, I was, I got out of out of my hometown to go into to save me from, you know, from potentially jail or overdose. You know, my right. rehab was the Marine Corps, and my gift of rehab to get clean was to go fight this country's war. Our war. Yeah. It's a you know? hell of a rehab facility. One hundred percent, one hundred percent, dude. Like that's not a lie. Like you're right, yeah. but I'm not alone in that. I'm not unique, and I've learned that, yeah. right? Like we all like. So like you know when you say like well, how do we get through these types of things? It's learning to accept the contrast of both ends of life, life and death. Yeah. If we can accept both of them, and understand like yeah, can we be fearful of these things? Sure, but we have to respect it. It's the same right. thing with violence. It's the same thing with escalation of force. We have to respect escalation of force, no matter what it is we do, no matter what you do, right? It, it, it's being a parent, right? Like, you know, if you spank your kid too hard, there's a certain level there, right? Yeah. You know, if you yell too loud, there's an escalation of force there. You know, if you don't say anything at all, there's an escalation of force there. <laughs> it, the, silence is just as worse or just as bad as the opposite of that, which is pure right. loudness. Yeah, it's that balance. It's the balance. And well, I mean, yeah, we didn't yeah, even dude. we didn't even get to, to to touch on, in all honesty, too many things. Uh, which is, it's good and bad. It's bad because we didn't get to cover it in the episode. It's good because it gives us something to talk about in the future when we when we do this again. Um, but I want to be respectful of your time, George, and say. Thank you, one, for your service, thank as I mean it. And uh, thank you for taking the time to come on here and, 
and be transparent about some pretty difficult topics uh, because I think I think it's with that transparency that this stuff it reaches the right ears you know maybe it doesn't reach billions of years but it reaches the right ones and I think it has the power to actually have a real impact on people's lives so I really appreciate you willing to talk about it man yeah man no you're welcome dude I appreciate you inviting me on and again like I said thanks to Casey for connecting us and I appreciate that dude 100 yes. percent he's seen my journey since fuck 2011 12 he's seen me come up over the years so I appreciate him being a great teacher and a mentor as well and one thing I do want to leave off on because I really like the fact that you said that the whole tears thing was the yeah. idea that, you're, or not, but the ears, I'm sorry, the ears of like the ears yep. it gets into. Even if this just goes to one person, that one person just needs to share it with another person. And it goes back yeah. to the whole leads to 10 people, and that 10 people go for it. And at the end of the day, right, like most people that hear this stuff won't believe it because it's just not yeah. something they've seen before or they've heard in their reality or they're not open to. And then we have another group of audience who will accept it and be like fuck dude that's yeah there's gonna be the in between <laughs> you yep. know but at the end of the day though man like realistically dude like i really believe conversations do create change and that's one thing that's gonna help with reducing some of the stuff that we see in our life today of suffering yeah. right of suicide and sadness and these big labels people are throwing out if we just have more conversations and not look at them from a dis from a dismissive standpoint and we can actually agree and disagree but bounce back and forth in a very healthy manner i believe that's going to move us forward and i think that's what we just did here today very well and i appreciate your time as well dude absolutely brother thank you george you're welcome bro. hey friends abe here thank you so much for tuning into this episode and sticking around to the very end if you want to support it leave a five-star review on spotify or check out www.mainideapodcast.com Join the mailing list and stay up to date on all things The Main Idea, from future guests, sponsorship opportunities, products that I'm using to help me perform at my best, invites to ask me anything, and any upcoming pertinent information to the show. I cannot do this show without you. It is literally why I show up each week and put these episodes together. So thank you from the bottom of my heart from being part of the community. I hope you have a great day.